We're going to have two readings from the Bible. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 13. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, he has made mention of my name. He has made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of the rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people, to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. To the captives, say to the captives, come out. And to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and will find pasture on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat or the sun beat upon them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. I will turn all my mountains into roads and my highways will be raised up. See, they will come from afar, some from the north, some from the west, and some from the region of Aswan. Shout for joy, O heavens. Rejoice, O earth. Burst into song, O mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Our second reading is from the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7 verse 1. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you. In the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, 
in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine, yet regarded as impostors, known, yet regarded as unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, yet not killed, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, poor, yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, for I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. This is God's word. Let me add my welcome to Matt's. It's very good to have you with us this morning. I know there are a number of visitors, and you're very welcome indeed. We've reached uh, in a series in the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 6, which is something of a climax. Um, So let's pray together before we look at that. Our Father God, we pray that you would open our eyes and ears to understand what you say to us this morning from your word, and please help us to respond in a way that's pleasing to you. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, apparently, according to this passage we're looking at today, there's something very special about today. It's not an ordinary day. And Matt mentioned this at the very beginning with the verse at the top of our service sheet. It's there in verse 2. This is a day of God's favor, a day of God's salvation, according to Paul. So, So the big point, really, of this chapter is that there has never been a better time to turn back to God. There has never been a better day to draw near to God's. There has never been, never will be a better time to come to the God of the Bible. That's the claim that Paul makes in this chapter. And he says, don't miss out. There's never been a better time to come to God. Do not miss out. Because today is the day that God will accept you. Today is the day that God will welcome you in. Today is the day when God invites you because nothing stands between us and God. 
Now, if you're uh, here with us this morning, you're not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you're very welcome. And, and it may be that you've been turning the Christian message around in your hand for a while. You've been wondering it, about it. You know, you've been examining it, exploring it, wondering what you think of God, or so perhaps what he thinks of you. Well, this passage says very clearly, there's never a better day than today to turn to this God. There'll never be a better time to come to him. Or it may be we would call ourselves a Christian, but uh, we're feeling lukewarm. And actually this passage says, well, today is the day to turn back to him. There's never a better time to turn back to him. You can be sure that he will accept you, that he will welcome you. But it may be we're uh, perfectly comfortable living life as a Christian. And for us, this chapter, in this chapter, Paul says, don't miss out on this day of opportunity. Make sure that you're not receiving God's grace with one hand and, as it were, scrunching it up with the other. Because before verse 2, do you see verse 1? Paul says, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Paul doesn't want any Christians to be self-deceived about what it means to come to this God, to be in relationship with the God of the Bible. So this chapter is all about not missing out on this great day of opportunity when God accepts us. So with that in mind, just come with me uh, to chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. I've put on our uh, handouts, you should have received in a little insert inside your service sheet on the back, a couple of headings there. And in verses 1 to 13 of chapter 6, I want us to see that God says, come to me by the ministry I've sent to you. By the ministry I've sent to you. So then, chapter 6, verse 1, Paul says, As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Don't you know what's an offer? Verse 2, in the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of my salvation, I helped you. We read that from Isaiah chapter 49, and Paul quotes it because the Bible promised a day, a day when the holy God would receive sinful people like you and me when nothing would stand in the way of perfect relationship. And if you knew anything of biblical history, you know that that was an impossibility for a very long time, that a holy God could invite into his presence, into relationship with him, sinful people like you and me. And Paul adds a three-letter little word, now. Now, he says at the end of verse 2, that day has come. That day is now. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So it's a big deal what he's saying. But let me ask, how do we know? How how do we know that today is the day to come to God? How do we know that this is the best day to accept God, to come to him, to accept his invitation and be sure he'll accept us? How do you know? Well, if you've uh, been with us the last few weeks, one big answer is that Jesus has died to forgive us. Jesus died to take the penalty for people like you and me. We saw that at the end of chapter 5. The very last verse, 21. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's impossible to ever think of coming to God without trusting in that death of Jesus in our place, through which he takes our sin, and we become the righteousness of God. But that's not exactly what Paul says here in verses 3 to 10. 
How do we know that this is the day to come back to God? Well, he says, essentially, in verses 3 to 10, because the Lord has brought it to you. The Lord has used all his power to bring this invitation to you and to me. In effect, verses 3 to 10, Paul says, Look, don't you see when you see our ministry that this is God clearing the path between us and him? Uh, I, uh, I hesitate to tell this story. It's a story about an amazing marriage proposal, which is going to put uh, you in the shade if you've just proposed to your fiancé. I'm sorry about that, but it puts everyone in the shade. But I, uh, I read about it a little while ago, and it was about a man in uh, Taiwan who wanted to uh, propose to his beloved, and he wanted to do it in a special way, and he really did. And uh, he gathered together about a 1,000 people, in fact, over a 1,000 people, at one particular time at 10 p.m. at night, in the darkness, in a square, and he gathered the people together to make the shape, the grand shape of two hearts, with, uh, you know, an arrow firing from one heart to the next. Huge human formation. And he supplied them with lights so that they would put on the lights at exactly the same time at 10 p.m., and these hearts would light up in the darkness, and uh, his beloved would see it. And he did it. He did it. And she said, yes. She said, yes, which uh, we're not surprised about. Why would you not? say yes to that. But but imagine if she said, well, how do I know today is the day? I mean, how do I know that he really wants to accept me today? How do I know that he really wants to invite me to live with him, to propose to me? How do I know? Well, you'd say quite simply that he has stopped at nothing to spell that out for you. He's gone to great lengths. He has commissioned all these co-workers in order to spell out this one thing to you. Come to me. Today is the day to accept his proposal. And in a sense, in verses 3 to 10, Paul is saying that through commissioning co-workers, gospel co-workers, God is spelling out a very clear message to his people. He is saying, today is the day. Come to me. How do I know today is the day? Look at the lengths which he's gone to. And just uh, just to see that in verses 3 to 10, do you see in verse verses 4 and 5, first of all, Paul says, look, in everything that we do, we're trying to show that we're servants of God, that this, this is really God speaking through us. This is a message God is spelling out to you. And you see God's power is displayed for our sake. How? In great endurance in verses 4 and 5. All kinds of endurance, troubles, hardships, distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. How else do you explain the great endurance of weak messengers of God, except that God upholds them so that they can bring the message to the Corinthians, bring the message to you and me? Or again, verses 6 and 7. God is the one deploying all his tools, all his power, all his weapons for our sake. Do you see it in verse 6? These all come from God, purity, understanding, patience, kindness. The tools of gospel ministry all come from God. Do you see? The Holy Spirit in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God. With weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, 
See, all the, the tools, the instruments, if you like, of gospel ministry by which the gospel comes to people like you and me, well, it's all God-given. This is God deploying his weapons, his instruments, for our sake to spell out to us that he invites us to him. And then finally, do you see in verses 8 to 10, God produces effective results through this ministry for our sake. Verse 8, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Paul's ministry, in a sense, though no gospel ministry looks quite as extreme as Paul's experience, all gospel ministry is a bit of an enigma like this. How can, it's a bit of a riddle, how can somebody who's outwardly poor and weak make many people spiritually rich and wealthy through God's gospel? It must be because God is at work. God is producing that result. How can these weak messengers who are full of sorrows, Paul says earlier in the letter, despairing even of life itself, yet rejoice to bring this message? It's only possible because God is at work here, producing these results. Paul says we are the embodiment through our message and our lives of what God wants to say to you. Today is the day. Come to me. Do not miss out on the day of my salvation. And that is why verses 11 to 13 are like a personal response to God's co-workers. That is why verses 11 to 13 in responding to Paul, the Corinthians would be responding to God himself who is spelling out his invitation through them. Do you see that in verse 11? We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, opened wide our hearts to you, In order to bring you this message of the gospel, we've laid ourselves bare, withheld nothing. He goes on, we're not withholding our affection from you, but you're withholding yours from us. As if to say, we're not holding you back, but you're holding back from us. Open your hearts also. Open wide your hearts. And so as we think about how we respond to this ourselves, I think it is that we're to embrace the ministry God sends to us. Embrace the ministry through which God says, spells out, come, come to me. I don't know if you've ever thought of it like this, but if the gospel has reached us, which it has for all of us, if this message of Jesus Christ and God's gracious invitation has come to us, well, we can be in no doubt that today is the day God will accept us. He has gone to great lengths to get this message to us, to bring it to us on a plate, as it were. Indirectly, through Paul's great suffering and endurance, God has upheld him that we might have this gospel today. He's done it, in a sense, through generations of gospel ministers like him. He has brought this gospel to us. But all of it has been God upholding those messengers, God deploying his tools, his word of truth by his spirit, God producing the effects for our sake. He makes us spiritually rich in Christ. And so can I say we're to be in no doubt today 
that God wants to welcome us in. He invites us. He invites us back if we've turned away from him. There's never a better time. There never will be a better time to turn back to God. He has spelled it out in very clear terms through his messengers. And so, in a sense, the command to open your hearts, Corinthians, is a command for us too, to open our hearts to the gospel message God has sent to us. But, but we might say, well, precisely what? what? What does that mean, open our hearts to the gospel? Well, in this context, it means something very specific. Paul's about to tell us. Now that he's got our ear, as it were, now that we know that he speaks not for himself, but he speaks on behalf of God, let's hear specifically what we're to open our hearts to. So come with me then to um, verse 14. Verse 14 to 7, 1. God says, in effect, come to me, come to me by leaving what doesn't belong with me. Verse 14. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Literally, don't be mismatched with unbelievers. He then sums up what he's saying in chapter 7, verse 1. We'll get to that. But, but to understand what Paul's talking about in this section, we just need to understand some basic opposites. Some basic opposites. Let's practice them, Paul says, verse 14. What do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Let's take those opposites. Well, there's never been a joint venture between righteousness and wickedness. It would never work. Or he says, what fellowship do delight and darkness have with each other? Well, no one's ever set up a light and darkness, LLP. He's talking about moral light and moral darkness. Darkness thinks light is a terrible thing and wants to conquer it and quash it. Light wants to spread and remove the darkness. Or again, he goes on, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? It's an ancient name for God's enemy. But it stands for opposites. There can be no harmony, no fellowship between the two. And then he says, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, we we may be surprised to find that in this list of opposites. And please note, he's not saying that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian's a good person and a non-Christian's a bad person. Nothing could be further from the truth of the Bible than that, from the truth of the gospel. A Christian is a saved sinner. But there is a great gulf between a believer and an unbeliever, and the difference is belief. One believes in the God of the Bible, and the other doesn't. One says that the God of the Bible comes first, and the other says, no, he doesn't. One lives to please the God of the Bible, and the other person refuses to do so. It's a matter of allegiance. And there's a great gulf between the believer and the unbeliever. But he goes on, verse 16, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? The temple of God is is just the special presence of God. It's where God lives. And there's an opposite between where God lives and where false gods live. And what does this matter for us, all these opposites? Well, Paul goes on to say in verse 16, we are the temple of God. We Christians carry around the special presence of God. No, these opposites really matter to us because we are 
where God lives. We are where the presence of God is. As it were, where Christians go, God goes. What Christians ally themselves with, God does. What Christians associate with, God does. Because Christians are the very presence of God. And that's not an overstatement, says Paul. Verse 16. Remember what God said throughout the Bible? I will live with them, my people, and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's what he's inviting us to, this God. A relationship so close, so intimate, that where his people go, God goes. He's inviting us to live with him. It's as if God takes up residence with his people. And therefore, verse 17, that has always meant to come to this holy God has always meant to come away from sinfulness and to break with practices that are inconsistent with him, don't mix with his holy presence. Verse 17, therefore, come out from them, that is the nations, and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. Verse 18, I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. We come to him. We always come to this God by leaving behind what doesn't belong with him, what doesn't mix with this holy God. And so chapter 7, verse 1, he sums up what our response should be. Therefore, since we have these promises, remember the promise that today God will accept us, that we can be his people, he will be our God. That's the promise. He says, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So for us, bearing in mind that this is the kind of God, a holy God, who invites us in today, we should leave behind, we must leave behind at the door, as it were, everything that doesn't mix with his presence. What Paul describes as everything that contaminates body and spirit. And and for us, let me just say a couple of things about what this doesn't mean before we look at what it does mean for us. The first thing it doesn't mean is that Christians do not withdraw from the world. This is not a command for Christians to to pull up the drawbridge and revert to a little holy huddle because the world is a place that would contaminate you. And so gather together and withdraw from the world and be separate. That's not what it's saying. Now, a number of Christian groups over the centuries have misunderstood what the Bible is saying, but the Bible never says that. Paul, in the first letter to this very church, he says that's absurd. You'd have to leave the world that way. No, it's not that. Nor is it saying that, for example, sons and daughters who are Christians should leave the their families, if the rest of their family, their siblings or parents aren't believers. It's not saying that. That too would be an absurd conclusion. It doesn't mean that a believing husband or wife should leave their spouse who isn't a believer. Now, Paul's very clear in 1 Corinthians as well on that. That actually for Christians married to non-Christians, the command is not to break away from that marriage if our non-Christian partner consents to live with us. But what it does mean is this, that every Christian, every person 
who would come to this God, who would accept his invitation on this, his day of salvation. We must break away from the sin that we know has no place in his presence. So let me ask us, where do we tolerate seeing things, doing things, thinking things that we know have no place in God's presence? If we were to really think of God being present with us, we would have to say it has no place. Those things have no place. Where have we become tolerant of those things in a way that is inconsistent with God's presence? This passage says that would be to ignore basic opposites. That would be to ignore this day of opportunity. This God says, come in, come to me. There's never been a better time, but there's never been another way than leaving behind what doesn't belong with his presence. Chapter uh, 6, verse 14, the command, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, has been traditionally understood by Christians to be saying, do not marry a non-believer. And although we can see from chapter 7, verse 1, that uh, Paul's command here is wider than that, he's saying more than just that. He's not saying less than that. And so let me say that if you're tempted to contemplate undertaking marriage, the most, the deepest physical and emotional union with another human being, God says, don't do that unless they're a believer. God says, recognize the great gulf there is between a believer and an unbeliever and recognize your first allegiance to him. But to all of us, this passage says, do not gamble with this great day of opportunity. And so as we conclude, let us remember that this is the day when the Lord invites us in. If we're feeling distant from him, come near. If we're conscious of drifting from him, turn back. There's never been a better time. He is sure to accept us. And the way we do that is by leaving everything that doesn't belong with his presence. Let me read chapter 7, verse 1, and then we'll pray. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Let's pray. Our Father God, we praise you that you have made it clear to us that you will receive us. Because of Jesus Christ dying for us, there is nothing that stands between us and you. You have sent your messengers, your gospel, directly to us. You've spelled out to us that today is the day to turn back to you. Please, would we receive your invitation? Would we come to you? And we pray that you would help us to break from everything that doesn't belong with you. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.